So anybody read the Advent devotional this morning before church? <gasps> wow, that was not a requirement today. But if you read your Advent devotional before you came to church on Christmas Eve, that is worth at least 50 righteousness points. So congratulations. We'll add it to your tally later. Um, I ask that today because had you read this morning, so you would see that the entry this morning was written by me about this text. <clears throat> I did not do that on purpose when we divvied up the texts and the days and all of that. It just so happens to happen because anytime I see this text, I have to say something about it because it might be one of my favorite passages of scripture in the whole Bible, which I know of all of the verses in the Bible, this doesn't feel like it should be anyone's favorite, but I cannot help but love it. It is hilarious and delightful and transgressive and exactly the sort of countercultural uh, switcheroo that God does throughout all of scripture. Um, here, let me, let me try to let you in on the joke a little bit. Okay. So the Israelites were not a nation for a very long time. They were not a nation. They were just a band of 12 tribes who were loosely connected by a sort of, uh, mythical shared lineage and, um, a vague notion of a God that's named the same thing, though worshipped and thought of in very different ways. Those 12 tribes occupied what we now would call Israel and Palestine, and they were similar. They were more like cousins than anything else. And after hundreds of years of them just being 12 nomadic tribes, there got enough people that they were like, hey, we should have a king. We should be one thing. And so a big group of people got together and they said, we want this tall, handsome hunk of a man named Saul to be our first king because, my goodness, he's a hottie. That is the only thing that we know about him, by the way. That is in the scriptures. That is the reason he is picked. He's charismatic and he's gorgeous which is what you want from your king, right? Absolutely. So, um, so the Israelites uh, elect JFK to be their first, no, it's Saul to be their first king. And Saul is a charismatic leader and everyone loves him for a while. And then he also goes a little bonkers and starts being murderous and awful at the same time. So he has to spend, I wanna say five or six years in this bloody civil war to unite the kingdom to create Israel for the first time. So after years of fighting, it becomes Israel. And that only lasts for a couple decades before David usurps the throne because a group of people want David to be king now. So David usurps the throne, becomes king, but it takes him about 20 years to get all 12 tribes together under one banner to declare him as the king. It's a bloody civil war against his own people and then also the tribes around him. So David's entire reign is just nothing but war with his people, with the outside people. It's just fighting, 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 which is not ideal. But then suddenly David checks his calendar and he realizes, wait, I don't have any more war on here. How long has it been since we've had a free weekend? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? Okay, I guess I should build a palace. Now I've got all these resources and there's no war. I'm not having to rebuild things that the Amalekites burned down. I'm going to build a palace. I'm going I'm to make a, a real capital. We don't even have a capital. 
So Jerusalem will be my capital because it's on a it's on a mountain. It's beautiful, and it's like walking distance from his hometown in Bethlehem. So you know he knows the area. And so they make Jerusalem a proper capital, and they build this amazing palace for him to live in. They have to take the cedars of Lebanon and float them down the coastline in order to build this uh, palace. It is gorgeous. It is perfect. It is beautiful. It is exactly what a victorious warrior king should have after decades of conquest. So now David is riding high. He's having the time of his life. He's beaten all of his enemies. He's got this gorgeous palace. He has a centralized government right where he is. He never has to leave his city. <sighs> he can finally settle down. And then one day he thinks to himself, hey, I should invite God to this party. I'll bet God would love a house like this. And we can set him up just down the street. It'll be great. We'll have slumber parties. So he tells the prophet Nathan uh, what his plans are. Now, Nathan is the head prophet. Now, a prophet for in the king's court, his only job is to tell you what God is thinking. So prophets are people who have these kind of special connection to the divine. You've probably met people like this, where they can sort of see things and know things. They have a kind of deeper sense of knowing, a wisdom that is somewhat unexplainable. Nathan has spent his life devoted to understanding God, both through the scriptures and the, well, the, what scriptures had been written, the stories of the people, and as his own personal experience talking with God. Nathan is the guy you go to when you want to get God's stamp of approval. So David gives him his plan. We're going to build God a lavish temple right here in the capital. And Nathan says, well, yeah. Of course, God would love that. Why wouldn't God love that? Yeah, the gods love having big temples. In fact, if you read the writings of all of the ancient people around them, their gods will demand lavish temples. People have been smoted by their gods for not building lavish enough temples. It's important that the temple to the god be bigger and higher and better than the palace to the king to show deference to who's really in charge. The gods, you're kind of petty in a lot of ways. So of course, the God of Israel also wants a big palace like Marduk has. Yeah, great. So Nathan goes to bed that night feeling just great. Everything is wonderful for Nathan. I just did my job. We're gonna get this cool temple. I'm probably gonna get an office there. And then he is awoken by God who tells him, dude, what the heck? I've been chilling with the Israelites for like a thousand years and not once did I ask for a house. No, I've been in a tent and it's been great. I asked you for the tent, I don't want a house. I'm on the move. I need to be able to get up and go and be with the people where the things are happening and not be stuck down the street from your political machinations. You cannot cage me. You cannot put me in this box in the middle of a temple far, far away from the people. I'd rather be camping. So can you see why I love this passage? <laughs> All throughout scripture, people try to contain God and then God bursts out of their containment units. They could not contain God then and we cannot contain God now. 
And I love this passage. But when I read over it this week, I was struck by something that I've never noticed before. Something that I think is probably more appropriate for us today, because I don't think we're really all that concerned with like church buildings and being in a sacred space. I mean, we're kind of, we're on the move all the time. Nathan was wrong. Did you notice that? Nathan was wrong. He gave David the go-ahead on the temple based on his understanding of God and everything he knew about the way that religion works. And he was wrong. He had one job. His one job is to know the mind of God, and he got it wrong. God was bigger, less predictable, more expansive than he knew, and he was faced with a tricky situation now. He was wrong about God publicly. Actually, this could have sparked a full-on existential crisis. I don't know about you, but I have been wrong about God before hundreds of times. I, at one point, told a girl that her mother, a Lutheran pastor, was not a real Christian because women weren't allowed to be pastors. And, you know, I don't need to tell you how wrong I was about that one. <laughs> Love you, babe. <laughs> But admitting you're wrong about God can be terrifying. I mean, after all, if you admit you're wrong about one belief, what's then stopping you from being wrong about another belief? And a belief after that, and a belief after that. Like, the whole thing is one big house of cards in a windstorm. Like, what happens if you're hearing the Christmas story and all of that, and you start to doubt something like the virgin birth? You're like, well, what if Jesus was Joseph's son? Huh. Now you can start to wonder about his divinity or his miracles and wonder, was he really the Christ? And was he actually raised from the dead after crucifixion? And maybe the whole thing is just a fairy tale invented by people who are afraid of dying. And you see how unsettling this line of questioning can become. That's why I think most people, when they start to feel like they might be wrong about their beliefs, they either run away entirely no more beliefs, no more religious communities, no more nothing. Or they shove that doubt deep down inside. They tell themselves their doubt is just a problem with themselves. They're not good enough yet. Their faith isn't strong enough to handle the torrent of doubts coming up. And clearly everyone else who shows up every Sunday has it figured out. So maybe there's a chance that I might get there too. <laughs> and many of our religious systems are built this way too, that if you have a doubt about a tenant within the religion, you keep it to yourself. You do not share that around this system for fear that you might start toppling systems of authority as well. <sighs> Many of us have come from a religion like that. That might be why you have found yourself at home at Open Table, um, a somewhat community of spiritual refugees. You've been wrong about God in the past, your beliefs changed and you were surprised by some new insight and you realized that it no longer fit within the church community where you had once thrived. Maybe you left Christianity altogether or you were unable to reconcile what you know now with what you were supposed to believe. Maybe it's taken you years to dip your little toe back in uh, the pool of organized religion or if you're here, disorganized religion. If you can relate to any of that, then this story is for you. 
not because of how God corrected Nathan, but rather how Nathan responds. How easy would it have been for Nathan to either just ignore God's voice and say, well, that's just me being doubtful. Let's build the temple. All God's love temples. Or to gaslight David. And then when he starts construction, be like, what are you doing? I told you not to build it. (sighs) Instead, he swallows his pride. He goes back to David and he says, I was wrong. God is bigger than our religion. And God doesn't want to be confined with you in this city. Now, how is he able to do that? How is he able to have the strength to not only expand his understanding of God, but also to admit it to his boss? I think it's because Nathan's faith was not grounded in facts or belief, but in love. A faith that is grounded in love is free to restructure its beliefs the way that a contractor tears down walls and expands the dining room. If the foundation is in love, then those walls can be rearranged without anything falling down. Love is the foundation and love is secure. And you, my friends, are so deeply beloved by God simply because you exist, not because of something you've done or said or not done or not said or believed or shown up for. And just as you are not loved because you're a good person, you cannot, that love cannot be taken away from you because you mess up or because you believe the wrong things. To quote Julian of Norwich, whose book, once again, Revelations of Divine Love, you will all read, or I will force you to at some point. (laughs) She wrote, God's love for humanity is so vast that he makes no distinction between the blessed Christ and the least soul among us. It is very easy to believe and trust that the blessed soul of Christ dwells in the highest realms of the divine. Yet, if I understand correctly what our Lord means, Wherever the blessed soul of Christ is, there too is the essence of all souls. When you can rest in the knowing of your oneness with God, everything else becomes secondary. Your faith can withstand whatever questions comes your way when its foundation is love. And you do not arrive at love, whether this kind of divine love or even love between people, by a mental assent. You don't decide one day that you love someone, right? It is something that is felt. It is something that is experienced down in the deepest part of yourself. There may be choices along the way to line yourself up with love, to choose to love someone when they're being a jerk. But... At the heart of the thing, you cannot force yourself to love anyone or anything. Love is felt. Love is experienced. Love is lived. Love is a story. Love is an emergent phenomenon that happens. It happens in a pre-rational and somehow post-rational way. It is a reality that you sense once you've done that inner work and you know yourself to be worthy of love. And once you've known love... And I mean, capital L, love, like the love that holds the universe together. Once you've known that love, you see it everywhere. You see it within everyone. 
And it bothers you that you see it within certain people because you would rather not see the divine in that person. I know I wouldn't. <laughs> the prophet Nathan was attuned to this universal love and that meant that he could hold his beliefs loosely. He could offer the gifts that poured from that love to David and to others. And likewise, friends, if you are grounded in love, then you can sit with folks who are plagued by doubt. You can love them through heartbreak, through loss. Your love can be a light in the darkness of their existential despair. So this Christmas, may you not only know God's universal love, but may it ground you in your faith. May love give you the stability to be wrong and to grow. May love be your comfort and may all else be details. And we have a few moments here. If there's